Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch Podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekends of Friday, December 24th through Sunday, December 26th, 2021, and Friday, December 31st, 2021 through Sunday, January 2nd, 2022. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Happy New Year, everyone. Hope you had a restful holiday season and that whatever New Year's goals you made for 2022 are still on track and that you're testing negative for Omicron if you are being tested. Uh, myself, I actually met my longtime goal of finally watching 100 new feature-length films for the first time last year and hope to do so again this year. Now, to kick off this year, since it's been a couple of weeks since our last episode, I don't think it'd make sense to go over all the exact numbers for both weekends in details. Rather, we'll look into the high-level stories that we missed while we've been on break, and we'll take a look at the high-level forecast for what's coming down the pipeline, particularly with regard to the post-pandemic recovery of the box office. Next week, we'll do a bit of a deeper dive into what films we have to look forward to for the first third of the year or so, the relatively slow winter and spring period, and then we'll wrap up this episode with, of course, what I've been watching. So last week when we left, so last time when we left off, Spider-Man No Way Home had just made history as the first 100 million plus opening weekend film domestically post-pandemic and the second highest domestic open of all time, pandemic or no pandemic. Now, how has it fared since then? In a word, amazing. Uh, to close out the year domestically, No Way Home has made 613 million as of this past weekend with another $759 million abroad, putting it at $1.37 billion to date. That's right, it's the first billion dollar film post-pandemic. Been too long since I said that B-word on the show. Um, Anyway, that puts it ahead of Battle of Lake Shenzhen as the highest-grossing film of 2021, uh, and notably without China, as well as the 12th highest-grossing film of all time, ahead of Black Panther's $1.34 billion. Um, Next up would be Age of Ultron's $1.4 billion. Uh, Domestically, it's at number 10 all-time, about $7 million away or so from overtaking The Last Jedi at $620 million. Now, drops-wise, it had a pretty steep drop Christmas weekend, though that is to be expected between a massively front-loaded, uh, so people could, um, you know, first weekend so people would try to avoid spoilers, and then the Christmas weekend when people were spending time with their family, but it bounced back with a respectable 34% drop over the New Year weekend. Uh, with a pretty clear January in front of it, you know, no real films to compete against it, $700 million domestically is totally on the table here, um, and definitely will probably hit five, uh, $1.5 billion, uh, even without China by the end of the month. Now, aside from Spider-Man, there are a couple of films that opened Christmas weekend. Uh, in or- now, we're going to go in order of their opening weekend gross. Uh, Sing 2 has provided family-friendly counter programming with a $90 million total to date on an $85 million budget. Uh, another $55 million abroad puts it in a lifetime at a $145 million. Now, it's not quite on par with the crazy performance of its predecessor. Um, that ended up making $270 million domestic and $631 million worldwide, but still, it's respectable nonetheless. And this one should leg it out over January, especially with an A-plus cinema score, the first for an animated film since the Spider-Verse movie, and Encanto, you know, the main competition, being available on Disney+. Plus. Uh, Matrix Resurrections, the fourth Matrix film, opened both on HBO Max day and date, as well as in theaters, to extremely mixed reviews, B- uh, on cinema score. As such, it's no surprise it had a muted opening to only $10 million and dropped 64% in its second weekend to now sit at $30 million domestic, $74 million abroad for $105 million lifetime against a $190 million production budget. Uh, it's an inauspicious end to the HBO Max day and date experiment from Warner Brothers, as you know they will be moving to 45-day windows starting with the Batman film coming out later this quarter. Um, that said, you know, just quick side on HBO Max. I do think, you know, definitely 
gave this the, the platform like a, a boost so to speak um that it, that it wouldn't have had otherwise it gave you know the the films that it would that it would have probably would have otherwise uh been considered failures um kind of some sort of cover right and and reason to be out there in the first place right without those films um you know without you know space jam and so on you know there's very well that you know theaters might have been more uh apt, apt to close down but knowing that you know HBO Max was going to have things out there. You know, the only ones you could really consider success would be Godzilla vs. Kong, Conjuring, and Dune. But, you know, they still did provide, you know, stuff for the box office to have at, at all, even if it was muted than what it might have been otherwise. So, you know, definitely, I don't think something would be necessary in the future, but definitely during the pandemic, it served its purpose. Anyway, back to the films that were released on Christmas weekend. The Kingsman, a prequel to the spy action comedy uh, series, uh, underperformed their low expectations of opening less than $6 million, had a decent drop for the holiday, but still since only at $19.5 million. Another $28 million abroad puts it at $47.8 million lifetime. Could not find a budget number for this, but the first film was in the $100 million range or so, so that one puts this at a precarious position with, I believe, a B-plus cinema score. Um, the only reason I think people will say to watch this is for the Rasputin character. Now, rounding out the Christmas top five was American underdog The Kurt Warner Story, a rare... Triple A plus cinema score this weekend. It made fourteen point seven million to date after opening on Christmas Day. So a sordid open only two days as opposed to you know the the Wednesday opening from all these other films we've been talking about. Um, again, no budget here, but I couldn't imagine it costing too much. Apparently, it's also doing really well with the Christian Christian church audiences. So it seems to have hit on its tar- target audience well. Now, outside the top five, some other openings, expansions, and, you know, closers as well. Um, a Journal for Jordan from Denzel Washington opened to an abysmal $2.2 million against a $25 million production budget. That's likely dead on arrival. Uh, Licorice Pizza expanded to 786 theaters from its initial four. Uh, Parallel Mothers, a potential Oscars contender, has an opening in three theaters for a per theater average of $12,750. Memoria, which is an art house film that's using the roadshow model of playing in only one theater for a week at a time before moving to another city, Opened in New York and made 18000 over the New Year weekend. Uh, West Side Story so far has about four weeks, after four weeks, has grossed just under $30 million domestically and $17 million abroad. Not bad drops, but sim- simply started out too low to catch up to its $100 million budget. Uh, Nightmare Alley from Searchlight has dropped to sub-million dollar weekends uh, in weekend three, sitting at only $7.5 million with a pretty steep second week drop. Uh, Dune ended its domestic run at $107 million, with $288 million abroad. That sits at $396 million worldwide. Overall, Christmas weekend saw a box office of $142 million and New Year's $97.8 million. Uh, this coming weekend, we have a film called The 355, releasing from Universal, directed and co-written by Simon Kinberg of the X-Men film fame, uh, starring Jessica Chastain, Lupia, Lupita Nyong'o, Penelope Cruz, Diane Kruger, and Fan Bingbing, uh, and a number of, as a number as a group of international female spies who work together to stop World War III. No forecast for it at this moment uh, for how it will do at the box office, but I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised. I would be pretty surprised if it opened high at all. More than ten million would be you know phenomenal for this. I think. Now, outside the U.S., a couple of headlines to talk about. First up, Japan. You may remember how 2020, the top-grossing film across the entire world, was the anime movie Demon Slayer, which opened to 44 million U.S. dollars. Uh, we had another uh, anime film open over Christmas weekend in Japan. Not quite to that same level, but good enough for the second highest opening of all time of any film in Japan. Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, a prequel movie to the popular Jujutsu Kaisen anime, opened to 23.5 million U.S. for the three-day weekend. Now, it's going to be impacted by Spider-Man 
Batman coming out in a couple of weekends, so it won't have as great legs as, as Demon Slayer, but definitely an accomplishment to be proud of, and once it makes its way to other countries overseas, including hopefully here in the States, uh, it'll definitely be a success potentially you know, in the 250 million reigns worldwide. Um, also in line with Japanese anime films topping the box office last year in Japan, uh, the first place uh, went to uh, Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0 with $90 million, Detective Conan, Scarlet Bullet, $67.5 million, and Oscar hopeful Bell made $58 million. Uh, the highest grossing non-Japanese film came in number 8, being F9, making $32 million U.S. Moving over to China, I won't go into the specific film numbers this episode, but we do have some film dates for the upcoming month. Uh, unfortunately, none for No Way Home just yet, but it looks like this coming weekend, the 7th, and Kanto will release in China. Keep an eye on this to potentially perform just like Coco did over there and be a surprise hit. It's already made $200 million worldwide. And then over in China on January 14th, Paw Patrol will release there as well. And of course, you know, we do have uh, the, the uh, early February, we do have, of course, the Lunar New Year to look forward to. Now, moving back across the Pacific to North America, the province of Ontario in Canada uh, just announced they will be shutting down theaters starting January 5th for at least three weeks in order to try and fight COVID. Uh, between that and the closures in Quebec, about 60% of the Canadian box office is now in lockdown, with Cineplex automatically refunding all tickets there. Uh, forecasts predict that, in, that, uh, you know, that here in the States, especially in New York, we should be seeing a the peak of the Omicron wave somewhere in the next couple of weeks over January, which definitely will impact the box office here well maybe though now that you think about it you know there isn't a ton coming out that should have been super big so maybe not uh in fact sony you know is preempting this by uh, moving their next film in their uh spider spy uh, spider-man universe morbius off of its january 28th release date back to april 1st in consideration of this uh, omicron wave though some fanboys are speculating that uh the reception of a certain spider-man in the no way home film uh may be leading them to make some uh, additional suits but that's all hearsay and all rumors and nothing actual concrete yet so that's neither here nor there uh, that does bring us though to the next special segment of this episode you know it's the beginning of the year and you know let's take a look back at 2021 right uh, domestically we had a box office total in the you know here in the US and Canada of 4.5 billion about 60% behind the 11 billion dollar number of 2019 now a few weeks ago we reported a story saying that 2022 should be about 9 billion or so uh, so about you know this is about this 4.5 billion was a 100% increase over 2020 um, and so we see another 100% increase this year you know doubling um now it's not quite all the way back to normal but a good way there i was curious though you know what will that look like right in terms of the movie that comes out like who, who are going to be the ones to drive this now one metric i thought to look at this you know while i was in the sour was thinking how many films would get to 100 million dollar total domestically and how many would actually open into 100 million dollars um you know now starting with the latter metric films that open to 100 million dollars it's not as common as you might think uh, in pre-pandemic times you'd have maybe five to seven films each year open to 100 million dollars domestic mostly superhero films and 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 Disney films. Um, I would say those films represent the top end of the box office, you know, the really big blockbusters that are able to get everyone into theater. Now, for 2021, as we noted, there was only one film domestically that crossed that mark, No Way Home. Mostly hampered by most of the other potentials were hampered by pandemic woes and day-and-date experimentation. Looking at the slate of 2022 films, though, I see seven potential films that could be $100 million openings, at least in pre-pandemic times. 
Now, in release order, first up, we have The Batman in March. Not in the DCU, but sorry, starring Robert Pattinson. And then in May, we have Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. Pretty safe bet to bet on a Marvel film to open to $100 million. Um, June brings two back-to-back potential openers with Jurassic World Dominion. Uh, the last two Jurassic World iterations both cleared $100 million easily. And then Pixar's Lightyear. The fact that in the last five years, every summer Pixar film not named Cars 3 has opened to at least $100 million, including the pretty unnecessary Toy Story 4 to $120 million bodes well for Lightyear. Uh, July brings Thor Love and Thunder, again, another Marvel film to bet on. And then November gives us the other Marvel film, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, assuming it doesn't move off that date. And then finally, Avatar 2, I think could go either way, but I will lean toward it will making the $100 million, assuming marketing is good, and the hype of following up to the franchise uh, from literally over a decade ago with the current record holder of highest grossing film of all time, so to have some buzz behind it, at least for that first weekend. So those seven films, again, three Marvel films, Batman, Lightyear, Jurassic World, and Avatar 2, one of those may not hit $100 million, um, but you know, if I say six of these seven make that mark, I'd say we're on our way to recovery, at least at the top end. Now, as far as films that gross $100 million domestically, not just in the opening weekend, but over their run, those expand the top of the box office from the biggest of the big box office films to the, for, to the films that are maybe have some slightly more niche audience, but are still able to appeal to enough people and have enough staying power to leg it out. Maybe they open the $50 million opening weekend and they drop pretty quickly to you know a 2x multiplier, or they open a bit lower at $33 million, but they're able to leg it out with good word of mouth to a 3x multiplier or higher. So in addition to the seven films I just talked about, there are, I'd say, 12 other films I'd peg as likely to cross into that $100 million mark. First, we have another Pixar film, Turning Red in in March. A pretty solid chance most Pixar films do tend to get there, um, especially without a lot of competition in the animation realm. And then in April, you know, we just talked about Morbius moving. Um, now, you know, it is another Marvel-related film post-Spider-Man. It's the first one actually post-Spider-Man. But it all does, you know, that have the wrinkle that its new date does put it one week ahead of Sonic the Hedgehog 2, another contender in the list. Um, and the first one did cost $100 million, one of only two from 2020. So that could potentially eat into Morbius' legs. Uh, May gives us Top Gun Maverick and, you know, one of Paramount linchpins to their release schedule. And Tom Cruise is a pretty safe bet most of the time. Uh, July gives us Minions, uh, The Rise of Gru. Uh, the last Minions film actually did open to over $100 million, but that was six years ago, and the other Despicable Me films in between didn't get that, that mark, which is why I didn't include it earlier. But that said, they all leg out to over $200 million domestically, so Rise of Gru, I think, will definitely get into that camp. Uh, July also gives us Black Adam, which is a spinoff of the Sazam film from the DC franchise. Uh, the, and Sazam was the last DC film to cross over the $100 million mark, so uh, with The Rock uh, playing uh, Black Adam, I think you know Suzanne has a pretty decent shot at 100 million dollars. Uh, September gives us another Tom Cruise film, Miss Impossible Seven. Um, even if they didn't open the 100 million dollars, they all got to over 200 million. Uh, October gives us Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse um, Part One, which is you know the groundbreaking you know first film uh, in this animated series gave us 190 million domestically. And then November gives us The Flash, which is a bit of a wild card, but based on the news that Michael Keaton's Batman will appear, um, it could potentially leg out there even if it doesn't open to $100 million. And then we have Creed 3 in November, which, you know, the first two Creed films also got over the $100 million mark. And then December gives us Aquaman, assuming it doesn't move, uh, which, you know, is the f- which the first film made over $300 million. Uh, and then Chris Pratt Mario film, which despite all the memes, I think people will want to check out, um, especially as counter program for the kids over the holidays. So that's also get to $100 million. 
So again, that is uh, Turning Red, Morbius, um, you know, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog, Top Gun Maverick, Minions, Black Adam, um, uh, a Mission Impossible 7, Across the Spider-Verse, uh, The Flash, uh, um, Creed 3, uh, Aquaman, and Mario movie as the 12 films that could probably get to $100 million. Now, now those in addition to the seven uh, hundred million opening films, that's nineteen hundred million dollars, hundred dollar films total. A couple of others I see potentially getting there if everything goes right for them. Uh, there's a Tom Holland uh, Uncharted film. Um, you know, video game franchises hit or miss. Um, so not entirely certain that one, but if it does hit, I think it'll hit well. Uh, the Sandra Bullock, uh, Channing Tatum, Daniel Radcliffe comedy film, The Lost City could be a pretty surprise hit. Uh, I believe coming out this March could be something like The Knives Out potentially. Uh, though it's the wrong time of the year and then Bullet Train uh, starring Brad Pitt among many others uh, coming out this summer could be a surprise summer blockbuster um, again these are by no means certain to get 100 million but again marketing reception is right it could get there all told that's about 20-ish films or so it will get 100 million next year assuming you know maybe some of my surpri- my potential reaches get there and some of my you know expected ones fall a little bit short um, in comparison now this past year 2021 the only 13 films got to 100 million dollars lifetime Meanwhile, pre-pandemic, it was pretty consistent for several years that we'd have between 30 and 35 films hitting that mark domestically. So, you know, if, we've, if we're saying that the, for, the recovery won't be 100% this year, maybe it'll be 2023 when we have 100% recovery again. You know, this is that we 2022 will be the halfway point to that mark. Um, you know, between 13 and, and, and 30, somewhere in the 21 films or so range. So, you know. I say for an on-pace recovery, you know, assuming maybe there may be some COVID stuff coming up in the way that might dampen some things, you know, I'd say if we get to say at least 20 films hitting $100 million domestically this year, I'd say we're on pace for recovery. Um, 18 or 19, maybe it's a little bit of a slower recovery. 21, maybe 22, 23 would definitely be super excellent uh, for pace on recovery. So about 20 films or so if we get there. Now, one other interesting metric I came across talking about the year-end numbers, based on total box office for the year, $4.5 billion again domestically, Marvel as a whole made up 30% of total box office, $1.355 billion. That number does include Venom, Let There Be Carnage. Spider-Man alone made up 12% of total box office domestically. Now, in comparison, 2019, Marvel only made up 15% of total domestic box office. 2018, I believe, had Deadpool. That was 18.3%. Of course, that is a combination of there being uh, fewer films released this year, Marvel having five instead of the normal three or four uh, films released, and Spider-Man simply being that much larger than everything else. But still, I'm curious how next year's Marvel slate will will pan out. Uh, Apparently, globally, uh, it was actually closer to 13.5% this year, 16.5% including Venom, whereas uh, in 2019 it was 13.6% all-inclusive, and 2019 was 14.8%. Um, so we'll see if it, if, it, if it dips down from this year. Um, anyway, this episode has gone on, I think, long enough. You know, I'm still a little bit rusty after the break, and I probably, you know, I'll probably go next week a little bit more in depth into the specific films January through April, uh, films coming out, and a bit more into what we can expect for each of those releases, not just the super big ones. Uh, one last headline, though: R.I.P. to Betty White, who didn't quite make it to 2022 um, or 100 years of AIDS. Despite that, though, Fathom Events will be having their 100th birthday celebration documentary screening to celebrate her life uh, next week, not this coming week, but the week after. 
Now, as promised, what I've been watching to wrap up the show, and I said, like I said at the top of the show, uh, I made it my goal of 100 films this year, so there's a bunch to catch up on. Uh, most of that Matrix films to get to Matrix Resurrections, but we'll just give the quick highlights. Um, while I was on vacation, you know, we, my wife and I watched this film called Will You Marry, a Filipino Netflix film that I wouldn't really recommend. I didn't find the main character particularly uh, likable, and it was trying to be both a serious emotional family drama and a bit of a weird romance comedy, which really didn't work for me. Uh, one, out, one out of five. Uh, Matrix Reloaded, the second Matrix, and Matrix Revolutions, Matrix 3. I'm combining these two together, and you know, I think they are basically a different film from the original f- Matrix fundamentally, right? The first film is very philosophical and, and asks these big questions and doesn't really care too much, I guess, about like the world building. There is enough there to, to, to frame the world, to frame the, the questions being asked, but very much a philo- philosophical film more than anything else. Um, and whereas in the second sequel films, they spend a lot more time on the science fiction world building element of the story, less so in the Matrix. It's still there, but you know the set pieces are really more for set pieces' sake as opposed to having things that push the character forward. Really, um, that being said, you know if you go into it with those expectations of hey, what's this weird sci-fi, ambitious sci-fi world that the Wachowskis are building? It's pretty enjoyable in their own right as a take on the apocalyptic science fiction future. So I give you know the the sequels uh, three out of five. Now, this was helped also, I think, later by watching the Animatrix anthology, which really fleshed out you know, the world of Matrix by, with anime sorts from some of my favorite anime directors. I uh, strongly recommend checking this out, 4 out of 5. Now, as far as Matrix Resurrection itself, it's definitely the most meta of the Matrixes. I think my biggest gripe was less the writing and more so that for the action sequences, you know, the Matrix is known for taking inspiration from the kung fu films of the 70s and, you know, having beautiful cinematography that, you know, gives these long, unbroken, interrupted shots um, that it set it apart from, the, from but, but this new Matrix, you know, went back to the typical modern American choppy editing. Um, not super great. I mean, you know, there's definitely some of the characters that I think have charisma there, you know, Bugs, Jessica Henwick, Neil Patrick Harris as the analyst, um, you know, Jonathan Groff um, as his, you know, spoiler character. Um, you know, I think they had something to them. Um, I think the meta commentary bits about sequels and what it means to return to a sequel, uh, especially when it, when you thought you were done with the world, I thought those were kind of clever. Um, and and some of the world building, right, about you know the AIs and what happened in the years since the Matrix, I think that was pretty cool as well. But the actual narrative thrust of you know the, the what is what is Neo doing, what is Trinity doing, what are they trying to do, and hooking things up and moving people around and all that. That never really got to me. I think part of it was because, you know, going back to the sequels and, and the first trilogy, um, it's all predicated on this idea of there's this great romance between Neo and Trinity. And I just never really bought into that romance myself. Um, so that that didn't really sink for me. But I think if you did, perhaps you might like this a little bit more. Overall, I gave it two out of five. Though that said, uh, if the lack of quality of this film was a meta-meta commentary by Lena Wachowski, about basically making the film intentionally bad to comment on how sequels are never good. Maybe an ironic 4 out of 5, perhaps? I don't know. Um, anyway, moving on to some Oscars films. Not going to talk about these too in-depth uh, because I do have another podcast, the Oscars Death Race podcast, that are starting up next week again. Um, who, and by the way, rumors are that the 
that we're going to push No Way Home for Best Picture, which is wild to me. But anyway, uh, Don't Look Up gave it three out of five. Not Adam McKay's best work. Didn't quite have like the same punch as The Big Sort did. Um, Being the Ricardos is a you know pretty decent, I think, um, pretty decent acting uh, all around by the cast, which is pretty the strongest part there. I think though the awkward talking head screenplay framing device didn't really work here. Made a lot more biopicy than it could have been. Uh, Spencer, on the other hand, um, you know, is a Really great psychological horror. I'm not one who likes the the Royals in general, but you know this one was definitely super interesting. I think there's a lot of could be nominated for here. Actress for sure, score, cinematography, production, and costume. Give that one a four out of five. Um, and then for my first film of 2022, uh, my wife and I watched the Netflix. Um, Mockumentary Death to 2021, basically recapping the sit show that was 2021, much like they did with Death to 2022, 2020 on Netflix. A fun if somewhat depressing, uh, oh yeah, that happened, look back at the year, uh, give it three out of five. Uh, and then finally to wrap up uh, my uh, you know list of the... Um, uh, to wrap up, you know, the year of 2021, just looking back at, you know, my favorite films of the year. Um, and there's some, some fun stats, right? So, you know, this is a numbers podcast after all. So of the 100 movies that I watched this year, uh, 20 of them were in theaters. Uh, 37 of them were for, my, for the 2021 Oscars. Uh, 19 of them were for my anime podcast where I watched all of Studio Ghibli's works. Uh, I watched nine classic films and 31 new releases. Um, and about, there were about 30 films I wanted to get to this year that I didn't get a chance to. Um, I think about half of those will make it to the Oscar death race this coming year, so be able to get those. Um, the month with the most films was April with 19 films for the Oscars death race, whereas uh, the month with the least films was January with only one. Um, honorable mention, Demon Slayer was my first film back in theaters, um, and I would say Princess Kaguya and the original Matrix were my favorite uh, classic films I watched the first time. Now, I have two top 10 list. Uh, one list is my top 10 best movies. So these are like what I would consider the most technically competent films of the year. Uh, these were in alphabetical order, Another Round, Dune, Green Knight, Dudes in the Black Messiah, Minari, Nomadland, Sound of Metal, Spencer, Tenet, and Wolfwalkers. Um, so, you know, obviously most of those are Oscars, uh, Oscars related, um, from either from last year or potentially this coming year. Um, and then my top 10 favorite movies. So these are those that are maybe not necessarily the best quality films, but you know, I just had like the, mo- like the most fun watching, I think, um, you know, Dune, Eurovism, Song of Ice and Fire, Godzilla vs. Kong, Minari, Sanchi. Spider-Man No Way Home, The Suicide Squad, Tick Tick Boom, Venom Let There Be Carnage, and The White Tiger. Uh, shout out to Minari and Dune for ending up on both of these lists. So I would consider those, I guess, my movies of the year, so to speak. And with that, that's a wrap for this episode of the podcast. Suit me ideas for what else I should cover via email at boxofficewatchpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review or at the very least, tell a friend any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon. That helps me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I've mentioned. Links to all that will be in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come from dnumbers.com. Intro and outro music from Kevin MacLeod. His stuff is at incompetent.fromusical.io. Editing production by Ninsboy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch. And remember, our watch goes on. Yeah.